in order of appearance. That was Chris Tomlin, Johnny Cash, Lecrae, Sunseed, who you laughed at for some reason, (laughs) the Gaithers, P.O.D., the Singing Churchmen of Oklahoma, and Mercy Me. Some of those you enjoyed. You could have listened to more. Maybe you have it on your playlist. Some of those you thought were ridiculous and inappropriate to be played in a worship service. All of those were singing about Jesus, whether or not you want to hear that and admit that or not. They were all singing about Jesus. And what's fact is, as we played those clips, and you listened to the songs, and you saw the people up on the screen, you made judgments about what you were watching and listening to. You made judgments about what you thought was good music or bad music. You made judgments about hairstyles and collar length and clothing and fashion. You made judgments about the sincerity of the people who were singing those songs, is my guess. You probably looked at some of them and said, oh, that's performance. And you probably looked at others and you said, no, that's worship. That person's not worshiping. That person is performing. You judged their their heart and their motives and their sincerity. You judged whether or not that particular clip should be played in a worship service, maybe. And maybe you're still thinking, you shouldn't have played that particular clip. It wasn't honoring to God. And what's interesting is that some of you are thinking that exact thought about different clips in that montage. Okay? This is on your notes. This is part of your outline. You and I cannot help but make judgments about people. We do it all the time, instinctively, automatically. And if that's as far as it goes, we make judgments about other people, we may be okay. But James is going to pick up on this issue, and he's going to apply it in a very important way, and he's going to say, look, there's a danger here. You instinctively make judgments about people all of the time. You can't help but do it. Do they look like me? Do they not look like me? Are they older than me? Are they younger than me? Are are they from the same town as me or no? Did they go to the same high school? Are they wearing red or black? You make all of these judgments, and that's fine on the surface. But James is talking about something different than just these these judgments that we make. And the issue that James is going to touch on in James chapter 2 is the fact that many of our judgments are imperfect and ignorant. Listen, we are guilty of the sin. It is a sin of partiality, or maybe your Bible is going to use the word favoritism, when we allow our imperfect and ignorant judgments about other people to have a negative impact on the way we treat those people. We're not just saying, when you look at somebody, do you size them up? You do it, and I do it. We all do that. The question is, do you allow your imperfect and more than likely ignorant external assessment of another person to then negatively impact how you treat that person? That's the issue that James is going to deal with this morning. The big idea is really simple. Those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ should not be guilty of partiality or favoritism. Why? Because we have received grace and mercy. That's what James is saying to us in this passage. Because God has shown you grace and because God has shown you mercy, of all people, we should not be people who show partiality or favoritism to others based on our 
ignorant and imperfect external evaluation of what we think that they look like. So that's the big idea. I want you to look in your Bible at James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 13, and then we're going to pray. The Word of God says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So... Speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom this morning. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to look at your word in James 2 like a mirror that maybe will expose the sin in our hearts. Father, give us wisdom to apply these verses correctly. There's some difficult things in this passage. We need your help to understand, to think through it. Father, we pray that we would be people who treat others the way that you have treated us, Father, with grace and with mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Very simply this morning, we want to ask this question. What does James have to say about the sin of partiality? And there are some notes in your bulletin. If you like to follow along, you can do that in the notes. We're just going to point out the major sections in this passage. What does James say about the sin of partiality? First, He just lays out the scenario. He just kind of lays the groundwork for what he's going to talk about. And it's in verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. We won't read those verses again. I think you understand this is the easier part of the passage to wrap your mind around. James says, imagine this. You're at church and two guys walk in. One guy clearly has a lot of money. You can tell. The other guy clearly does not. If you based on this external evaluation of these two people, 
treat the guy with all the money. You roll out the red carpet and you just welcome him and you're nice to him and you give him all this attention. If you do that for that man, and then on the other hand, you say to the poor guy, hey, there's standing room only at the back row of the balcony. James says there's a problem. He's not saying, I think you need to be careful, and I need to be careful. He's not just saying, did you notice the guy's ring? Well, then you're a, you're a sinfully judgmental person. That's not what he's saying. We're all going to make these external evaluations. You're going to sum people up just out of instinct. Part of that is survival. Is this person safe or not? Do they look like me or are they different? Do I, do I expect them to speak the same language as me or not? All these things, you just, they're, they're going to fly through your brain automatically. James knows that. He says, you're going to notice if the guy has a nice ring and fancy clothes or if he looks like he doesn't have much. That's automatic. The question is, are you then going to play favorites based on what you see externally? This is the scenario he's describing. Here's the issue. These folks are treating people differently based on an external evaluation of what they look like. Now, I want to be clear, and I want to be careful. At least once a year, we have a training at our church for our greeters and our ushers, people who sort of stand around the building before Sunday school and before big church. So we have these trainings. One of the things we say to them is, we give them a, a piece of paper, and it's got all our Sunday school classes listed. And we say, okay, this is a list of all our Sunday school classes. This is the average age of each of these classes. This class is for college kids. This one is for young adults. This one is for middle adults. This one is mostly older adults. And this one is older ladies only. And we, we detail all these classes out. And we say to people, you need to know this so that when someone walks in the door, you can help connect them to the appropriate class. What we don't say is, here's a description of a person where if they walk in the building, you're going to usher them right out the back door to the alley. Bring them right in the front and right out the back. That's not our intent. Our intent isn't to discriminate. Our intent is to help people connect. What James is saying is be very, very careful that you don't treat people differently. Not just trying to help them connect with the body. Not just sort of recognizing them for who they are. But treating them differently in a negative way simply because you think you've summed them up on the outside. So it's one thing to see a new face in the hall and to think, do I know them? Do I recognize them? Do they look like me, older, younger? Do they look like they have kids or, or no kids? Do they look like they're in school or, or out of school? That's one thing. But these people that James is talking about are treating people differently based on the way they've sized them up. The specific issue here is wealth. Okay? Wealth. I'm going to try to be an equal opportunity offender. Okay? Those of you, maybe you got a lot of money in your bank account. Those of you who don't have much money in your bank account, I'm going to try to make you all mad, okay? This cuts both ways. The specific example James gives is you're nice to the rich guy and you treat the poor guy like garbage, right? That's clear. And James is saying that's a problem. I can tell you that I have been in church situations where the predominant demographic of the church was white collar and where a blue collar guy sort of walks in from the outside and he's really held at arm's distance. I've seen it. I've experienced it. Maybe it's because of the clothes that he had on. Maybe it's because everyone knows what he does for a living. Maybe it's because of of 
the perceived lifestyle of this individual, but he just doesn't fit, and he's held at arm's distance. I've seen that. That's what James is describing here, right? I'll be honest with you. I've seen the exact opposite. I've also been in church settings where the predominant demographic was blue-collar, and where a guy walked in with maybe blue suede shoes like your worship leader had on this morning. (laughs) And everyone said, well, look at that. I mean, the preacher's got boots on. I can relate to that, but he, blue suede shoes. He's got to be uppity. He's got to be soft. He probably has one of those easy desk jobs. He never lifts a finger or does anything, and he gets paid for it. And I've seen that. I've seen where a person who has means and maybe does have a white-collar job is held at arm's distance by the folks in the blue-collar minority because they make some external judgment or evaluation on them. So here's what I'm saying to you. James gives us a specific example. He says, this is an issue. Imagine this. Guy walks in, he's rich, you treat him real nice. Guy walks in, he's poor, you treat him like garbage. That's a problem. It is a problem. It's also a problem... If the guy walks in who has a lot of money and you say, well, you know, we're not one of those churches. We're just a bunch of regular folk here. I don't know that we got time for somebody who thinks they're all high and mighty. I don't know if we have time for somebody who's never worked a real day's work in their life. That's a problem. It goes both ways. So one of the issues that James brings up is wealth. And we could look at that today. We could think through how it applies in churches. Can I give you another issue? Okay, Take the same principle that James is describing in this scenario partiality, partiality, and let's apply it to nationality or race. Equally problematic. Okay? Again, I'll try to offend all in the room if I can. There's a problem if somebody walks in and their skin color is different than you. And you immediately assume, I can't relate to that person. I don't have anything in common with that person. I can't be friends with that person. I'm going to treat them differently based on my external evaluation of what they look like or where it looks like they've come from. And I've seen this happen both ways. And the interesting thing about living in Odessa, Texas, you live in an interesting place. One of the interesting things about living in Odessa is there is no like 90% majority of one ethnicity. There's a lot of all of us. So you kind of just got to figure it out. And it's entirely possible that a bunch of white people would see a Hispanic person come in and say, why are they here? What are they doing here? Why, why would they come? That's problematic. Listen, if a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ walks in who has brown skin into your white Sunday school room, you need to understand you have more in common with that brown brother or sister than you do with any white person who doesn't follow Jesus. And the opposite is true. It could be entirely possible that a group of Hispanic people look at a a white person and say the exact same thing and treat them the exact same way. Or you pick the color of skin that you want to throw into this mix. It can go both ways. It can go any way. It can be any sort of preconceived judgment or notion you have about a certain person because it looks like they have a lot of money or their skin color is a certain way or their, their accent sounds a certain way. And James says this is the scenario, this issue of partiality. Not just that you make an external evaluation and you notice that their skin color is different, but that you take that judgment and you then treat people 
differently. James says this is a problem. So now we're moving on. That's the scenario. Now we're going to talk about the stupidity of it. And listen, I'm aware that some people don't like it when I use the word stupid in a sermon. I've had feedback from people that say you shouldn't use that word. It's not a nice word. What James is saying is it's stupid. For you to show partiality. It really is. And he he just spells it out. So look with me at verse 5, 6, and 7. Let's read it again. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Hasn't that happened? Yes, it's happened. Verse 6 and 7. You've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the, uh, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Look, verse 5 goes by itself and verse 6 and 7 go together. And in verse 5, he gives us the general principle. And in verse 6 and 7, he gives us the specific application back to the specific issue he's thinking about, which is the rich guy comes in and you roll out the red carpet. So look at the specific, okay? Rich guy rolls in, you roll out the red carpet, you treat him real nice because you think you can get something out of him or you think he's valuable or you can use him in some way. James says, whoa, 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 do you realize how foolish that is? Do you realize how stupid that is? In this particular case that he's thinking about, and he's probably heard some specific story, he says, look, in this situation, not in every, but in this situation, those are the guys who oppress you. Why would you treat them so, so great like royalty when they're the ones that are holding you down? They're dragging you into court. He knows what's happening with these people. He says, look, when they oppress you, they're blaspheming the name by which you're called, the name of Christian. They're making a mockery of it. Why would you show favoritism or partiality to those people? It doesn't make any sense. What's the bigger issue? Verse 5, here's the principle. That's not how God treats people. God, this is on your outline, God does not treat people with partiality based on wealth or status or race or any other external thing. God doesn't do that. Why would you do it? God doesn't care how much money you have in your bank account. You know why? He knows it's not yours. It's his. He's not concerned or impressed. He doesn't care how many followers you have on social media, how many Facebook friends or Twitter followers or likes or hearts or laughs or retweets or any of that. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. It doesn't impress him in the least. He doesn't care about your skin color. He made all of them. He gave you your skin color. It doesn't impress him. He made it. He doesn't care what job you do, if you think it's important or not important. If people in Odessa, Texas think you have a a, a good job or a bad job, if you sort of throw it around as, well, this is what I do, or you're ashamed of it, God doesn't treat people based, based on that issue. Why would we care about it? He doesn't. He doesn't care what country is stamped on your passport. And I'm not talking about the ones you go to. I'm talking about the one on the outside. He doesn't care about that. We just prayed earlier. We tried to remind ourselves God is sovereign over all the nations. He doesn't care if you're American or Mexican. It makes absolutely zero difference to him. Zero. God doesn't treat people with partiality or favoritism. Why would we? When we do it, James is pointing out a very important fact. We're acting 
foolishly, stupidly, because we're doing something that God would never do. So that's the stupidity of partiality. Number three, the severity. This is where it gets bad. The severity. Look at James 1, verse 8 and verse 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, here is a quote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you're doing well. Good job. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. One of the things we've seen in James, we will continue to see in James, is that James listened to the teaching of Jesus. And Ron preached last week, and he made the point that for most of Jesus' ministry, James missed it. He didn't understand it. He didn't see it. He was right in that. But later, the lights went off. Bells started sounding, and, and everything was connecting. And he understood the teachings of Jesus, in particular the Sermon on the Mount. It shows up over and over and over again in the book of James. So do you remember in the sermon, uh, excuse me, this is a little bit later than the Sermon on the Mount, but it's in the same book in Matthew. Uh, Jesus is talking to a lawyer, and the lawyer says, Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. Pay attention to this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James is listening to Jesus. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. James quotes it right here in verse 8. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. And James is going back to his brother, big brother Jesus, and he's saying, look, Jesus talked about this. The two greatest commands. Love God more than anything else and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says in verse 8, if you do that, you love your neighbor as yourself, way to go. That's great. Good for you. You're doing well. Keep it up. Verse 9. But if you show partiality or favoritism based on all these external things, you're committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors, meaning showing partiality and favoritism make you a lawbreaker before God. When you and I do this, we show favoritism or partiality, that puts us in the category of lawbreaker. Now, some of you are thinking, big deal. You don't want to say that out loud because you're at church. But what you're really thinking is, whoop-de-doo, big deal. I mean, do you know what kind of stuff happens in this town? You know the kind of things people are doing right now? Have you watched the news? Have you seen the horrible things reported every day? Have you paid attention to what's happening in our country? Is this really such a big deal that you're going to harp on this, me, the preacher, or James, the writer? What is the big deal? In our logic, we like to think, I'm only on the hook for the things that I do. And as long as I don't do really bad sins like murder, adultery, bank robbery, I'm okay. That's our logic. James' logic is completely different. James says, you transgress the law in any point that makes you a law breaker. Look what he says in verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. What does every 
American think when they read that verse? Every American thinks, that's not fair. That's not fair. How in the world are you going to hold me accountable for the whole law when all I did is show a little partiality? I didn't kill anybody. I didn't cheat on my spouse. How am I going to be accountable for all of it? Well, James tells you how. Verse 11. The one who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. There's only one lawgiver. It really doesn't matter which one of the commands or how many of them or how often you transgress. Once you transgress, you're a lawbreaker. And look, you can sit there and I can sit here and we can say, well, that just doesn't seem fair. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like the way things ought to be. We all know it's fair. Here's how we know it's fair. We're going to get out of church here in a little while. One of these, one of these days we're going to get out of here, I promise. Hang in there. Get in your pickup truck or your Camry or whatever you're driving out there. Get a buddy to do this with you, okay? Find a buddy in the pew. Pull out here on the road. You can go up and down Tanglewood if you want, or you can come up and down University. Pull up to the first red light you come to. Start revving your engine. And when the light changes, just punch the gas pedal till you get to about 120. And see who gets to the other corner first. Just do that. And then do it until you get arrested. Just keep doing it. And when the cop pulls you over and says, what are you doing? This is what you say. I went to church this morning. I was at Emmanuel. Landon will vouch for me. Just call him. It's not like I robbed a bank or anything. I was in Sunday school. It's July 4th weekend. I went to Sunday school today. You kidding me? James says, look, you can keep all of it. You can do all of it. But once you transgress, you're a lawbreaker. You don't have to like it, but you know that's how real life works. That cop is going to look at you and smile, and then he's going to drag you out of your car and arrest you. He's going to say, you have broken the law. It doesn't matter how many good things you've done today. You're guilty before the law. You'll be held accountable. That's what James is describing here. I hope you understand how big of a problem this is for those of us who like to think or operate by the idea that we're earning our way with God. This is a problem. Okay? A lot of us think, I need to do certain things to earn my way with God. I need to try not to say cuss words. and I need to try not to be mad at the person who cuts me off on university or the person who messes my order up at lunch, that waiter or waitress who just butchers my order. I need to try to be nice to them and bite my tongue. I need to try to not do all these bad things and do all these good things. And if I do all that stuff, God's going to be pleased with me. That's a losing philosophy in life. It doesn't work. Because at the end of the day, you're a lawbreaker. It may be this issue, partiality and favoritism, or it may be another issue, but you're a lawbreaker. You know it, and I know it. So you can go before God on the last day before the judge, and you can detail all these great things you've done. God, I did this, and I did that, and remember when I did that, and I, I, I remember that time I didn't say a bad word, and it was so good of me to do it. You remember all that? And the issue is not going to be how many good things you've done. The issue is not going to be how many bad things you've done either. The issue is going to be, are you a lawbreaker? And James just drives it right home. He hits us right between the eyes and he says, I am, you are, and we all are. 
we're lawbreakers. Maybe you feel like you've done better in one area than another area. You feel like the adultery thing you're pretty good at or the the murder thing you're pretty good at. But this is a heart issue. And any transgression of the law makes you a lawbreaker. I hope you understand that that's a problem for me and that's a problem for you. The Bible describes God as holy, holy, holy. He's not a God who winks at sin. He's not the kind of judge that perverts justice and refuses to do what's right. The judge of all the earth will most certainly do what's right. He will hold sin accountable. How in the world are you and I then going to be able to stand before this judge, before this God? And that brings us, lastly, to the solution. The solution to partiality. Here it is. We need grace and we need mercy from God. And I like to read verse 12 and 13. Don't close your Bible yet. Look at with me at verse 12 and 13. We're going to read it, and then we're going to work backwards and try to think this through. James says this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy to the one who has, is without, excuse me, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a, a difficult couple of verses to make sense of. I couldn't even read it correctly, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to work through it backwards and try to make sense of it. Look what he says at the end. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is what I think he's saying. He's bringing us back to James 4, 6. God gives more grace. God gives more grace. All these things that James is commanding us to do We're going to fall short of them, this one included. James knows it, I know it, you know it. And James is bringing us back to this idea, God gives more grace. Mercy in your life has triumphed over judgment. What he's saying is, you deserve the judgment and the wrath and the anger of God to be poured out on your life. You deserve it just like I do. And in place of that, God has been merciful to you. He's been gracious to you. He has not treated you as your sins deserve. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment. Look what he says in verse 13. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. This is where I got ahead of myself a minute ago. I was talking about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. This idea in the first part of verse 13 is pulled straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. Look what Jesus says. If you forgive others their trespasses, your Father will forgive you. If you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That sounds an awful like an awful lot like what James is saying in verse 13. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And this is what he's saying. He's not saying you earn or you work for your forgiveness by forgiving other people. This is the principle in Jesus and in James. People who have been forgiven, and they've experienced that through Jesus, the mediator, those who have been forgiven will be forgiving people. That's the connection. And in your life towards others, if you are not forgiving and gracious and merciful towards others, it's a sign for everyone to see. You can argue all you want. You can talk about your baptism. You can talk about VBS. You can talk about this, that, and the other and the mission trips you went on. If you are not forgiving to other people and you're not gracious to them and merciful to them, it's a sign that you are not a forgiven person. You can know all about it. You can answer all the right questions, but you are not a forgiven person. 
Forgiven people become forgiving people. The solution is grace and the solution is mercy. Listen, this is the heart of James all the way through. He gives us a command in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We've talked about this in the book of James. There's 108 verses and there's 59 commands. We just read one of them. Speak and act like those who have received grace, those who will be judged on the law of liberty. The way you treat other people is the display of whether or not this has taken place in your life. So do this, James says. And all those 59 commands, they're not a list of things that we do in order to earn our way with God or to make God love us or to make God happy with us. In fact, they're a list of things that we look at and we say, I've blown it. I've totally blown it. And it doesn't matter if you've blown all 59 or 58 or one. You blow one of them. You've transgressed the law and you're a lawbreaker. How can you be right before the judge when you've broken his law? The only way, as James lays it out, is you've got to receive grace. Mercy has to triumph over judgment. James 4.6, God gives more grace And when that happens, your faith is centered on Jesus. That's the very beginning of our passage. James 2, verse 1. Look at it. My brothers, show no partiality. There's a command. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Your faith in Jesus is more than a prayer you pray so you can go to heaven when you die. It's more than something, more than something you, you sort of give expression to so you can be a part of this church family. It's more than something that saves you from your sins. It's also something that transforms you into the kind of person that God wants you to be. Not someone who shows partiality and favoritism, but somebody who shows grace and who, who shows mercy. So, just think for a moment. What would it look like at Emmanuel? if we took the stuff that James is talking about and we actually put it into practice. I don't think we're the worst church in some of these respects, but I think we have a long ways to go, if I'm honest. What would it look like if we took some of this stuff and we actually put it into practice? Well, those of you who have a lot of money would continue to remind yourself that doesn't get me anywhere with God. doesn't entitle me to anything special. God has blessed me with this. It's not mine. And those of you who don't have a lot of money would not walk in this building or any other building with a chip on your shoulder assuming that everyone who has a lot of money in their bank account is somehow greedy or evil or wicked or immoral or out for their own ends. That's a two-way street. It might look like people who have a lighter pigmentation of skin would not just automatically put up some barrier towards somebody who has darker skin. And it might mean those of you who come and you have darker pigment of skin, God gave it to you, praise the Lord, you don't walk in and say, well, look at all these people with white skin. I can't relate to those people. That's a two-way street. It might look like a bunch of people who refuse to withhold forgiveness starting to extend it. A bunch of people who realize God has been gracious to me. He's not treated me the way that I deserve to be treated. And I need to then extend that to others. Rather than show partiality and favoritism, I need to be somebody that's extending grace and mercy. I need to to reach out to other people 
in that way. It would look like a group of people who understand the gospel of Jesus, the faith that we hold to in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is not just something that saves me in the end, but it's actually something that transforms me now and has impact on the way that I relate to other people. So I'm going to ask you to bow, and I want us to pray, just asking God to expose us, to convict us, to give us understanding. Father, we come to you. We're grateful that you have not treated us as we deserve to be treated. You have been gracious to us and merciful to us in spite of who we are. Father, we know that we are lawbreakers. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, you have brought us back into a relationship with you. Mercy has triumphed over judgment. You continue to give more grace, and for that we're thankful. Father, our prayer this morning is that the faith that we have in Jesus would not just save us in the end, but that it would change us today. Father, whatever our skin color, whatever the size of our bank account, whatever our our preconceived notions may be about other people, Father, we want to be done with those things. We want to see people the way you see them, and we want to treat people the way that you've treated us. Father, we know that's hard. It's hard for all of us. And so we come to you, we look at this command in the book of James, and once again we say we need your help. We have fallen short, and we will continue to fall short apart from your grace and your mercy and your spirit working in us. And so that's what we ask for this morning. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.